Hello and welcome to the reading of the business record for July 24th. I'm your reader, Al Burns. More contactless payments are in the cards for Iowans. When Green State Credit Union sent out a press release last week announcing it is now issuing contactless credit cards for all its new customers or those whose cards were recently renewed, I was curious how prevalent the move to contactless, also known as tap-and-go, cards has been. Most Some of the most recent data comes from a survey by MasterCard. According to a CNBC article posted last week, just over half, 51% of Americans, are using some form of contactless payment, which includes tap-and-go credit cards and mobile wallet apps such as Apple Pay. And an equal percentage of U.S. customers in that same survey said they're using cash less often or not at all since the pandemic began. Additionally, according to the survey, nearly a third of respondents said they have recently switched out of their top-of-wallet card for a card that offers contactless capability due to safety and convenience concerns amid the coronavirus. Younger adults, 35 and under, were even more likely to switch to using a contactless card for health safety reasons, with 43% in that age group switching to a contactless card. Patrick Dix, Vice President of Strategic Alliances for Shazam Network, said that about 250 of the top 300 merchants in the United States already accept contactless cards, and he anticipates much wider availability of the technology in the next year or two. I don't think the older technologies, magnetic stripe and EMV chip cards, will go away anytime soon, he said. It's up to the bank or credit union to decide. What do the customers demand? What do the merchants use? And what is our risk tolerance for keeping transactions safe? The majority of credit card accounts are controlled by about a half a dozen of the biggest U.S. banks, Dix noticed, and nine of the ten largest credit card issuers are rolling out contactless cards in the United States. A report in June by Mercator Advisory Group, which tracks the payment card industry, states that 31 million Americans tapped a Visa contactless card in March, up from 25 million in November. Visa estimates estimates there are 175 million contactless, contactless cards now in the United States market. Dick said he's used a contactless card for about the past five years, actually, and he's noticed many more merchants locally who offer contactless payments. From Shazam's perspective, our bottom line is making sure that our banks and credit unions have access to the technology they want to use, Dick said. It should be a level playing field. The technology shouldn't be used to route the transactions to where they otherwise wouldn't go. New restaurant includes refurbished bars discovered in Toledo. One of the first things visitors will see when they walk into Lucky Horse Beer and Burgers is a refurbished 1890s style back and front bar with intricate wood carvings. The owners of the new restaurant and bar discovered the bars which had been made in Tama and moved to Toledo. It's a really comfortable space, a kind of space where you can hang out for for quite a little bit, said Jeff Bruning, president of Full Court Press, the restaurant group behind Lucky Horse Beer and Burgers. The restaurant opened on July 16th. The restaurant at 2331 University Avenue was originally slated to open in mid to late spring, but the outbreak of the novel coronavirus changed those plans. The restaurant doesn't have a space for outdoor seating, so Bruning and his team reworked a business plan based on reduced seating capacity due to social distancing requirements. 
Prospective patrons may be hesitant about venturing into an establishment for a sit-down meal, another hurdle for the restaurant group. We've never opened up and we've never had a business in Dogtown specifically, so we have no idea how this will work, Bruning said in a recent interview with the business record. The new establishment is a space that several well-known businesses once occupied. Crazy Horse Guitars from 1996 to 2017, and prior to that, Music Circuit and Found Guitars. Before that, the building, constructed in the 1880s, housed a pharmacy, copy store, and surgeon's office. The building has been renovated over the past year, including the addition of windows to the University Avenue side of the structure. The restaurant will feature 24 beers on tap, as well as canned beers, cocktails, and frozen cocktails. To-go cocktails will also be available in various sizes. Hours for the establishment will be 11 a.m. to 10 p.m. Mondays through Thursdays, 11 a.m. to midnight Fridays, 10 a.m. to midnight on Saturdays, and 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. on Sundays. The staff at Lucky Horse will be required to wear masks for the foreseeable future. Tables will be positioned in accordance with social distancing guidelines. Full Court Press owns and operates 12 other Des Moines area establishments, including Fong's Pizza and Iowa Tap Room. Women of Influence 2020 The coronavirus pandemic has required resilience and fortitude from our leaders, many of whom are women. The 2020 Women of Influence honorees are no exception. Their stories of work, both past and present, are inspiring, especially in a time when we need role models who offer humility and thoughtfulness. This year's honorees dedicate time, resources, and effort to businesses and community organizations. They lead in top jobs at companies large and not so large. They plan headlining events and strategies that will transform Greater Des Moines and families. They have earned multiple degrees. They come from different backgrounds. They have overcome challenges and embraced opportunities. They are not simply influential because of what they do or have done, but also because of who they are. This is the 21st year the business record has honored inspiring and influential women. They've amassed a tremendous amount of experience and wisdom and showcased integrity, grace, and intelligence. Mary Andringa. For Mary Andringa, continuous improvements is not just a practice for Vermeer Corps workers and a goal for the global manufacturing company. It's a personal commitment and a philosophy that she has championed for more than 35 years. She is the chairman of the Vermeer Corporation. Andringa, daughter of Vermeer founder Gary Vermeer and a second generation company owner, has guided the Pella-based global corporation into its third and fourth generations while also breaking new ground for women in the manufacturing industry. She remains the only woman to have led the National Association of Manufacturers, one of the nation's largest industry group, as chairman. Andringa, who has been Vermeer corporate chairman since November 2015, was previously CEO and chairman for one year and president and CEO for five years. Earlier roles have included co-CEO and chief operating officer. A significant focus throughout her tenure with the company has been continuous improvement and education. In 2019, she was inducted into the Equipment Manufacturers Hall of Fame. Six years earlier, she received the same honor from Industry Week. Her commitment and relentless leadership permit position Vermeer Corporation as a strong voice in the industry for lean manufacturing, for the education of our future workforce, the legislation of policies having a positive impact on manufacturing, 
for family-owned and operated companies and for taking care of the people of Vermeer, the Equipment Manufacturers Award stated. Developing and maintaining a skilled workforce are often manufacturers' top concerns, and Dringa found for her experience in leading the National Association of Manufacturers. Every year, NAM would survey members to find out what their top issues were, and usually a skilled workforce was in the top three and often number one. We have worked hard on that at Vermeer, and I've been a big proponent of that too. For instance, our welders who come in often need more math education, and virtually every role at Vermeer, whether you're in an office job or the production line, technology and math are important. Career opportunities for women in manufacturing have grown significantly over the past 35 years, she said. We have many fantastic women team members in all aspects of the company. Certainly in production, the percentage of women continues to grow. In addition to HR, which is predominantly women, we also have a lot of women in our finance area and IT, marketing, and engineering. I've been delighted in just the last 10 years to see more women become part of our engineering teams. And the thing that I know for sure for the future is that there will continue to be great opportunities for women in all parts of manufacturing and distribution. Speaking of the future, this summer, two fourth-generation family members who are high school students are working at Vermeer in internships. On the other end of the employment spectrum, Andringa and her husband have taught classes for the past several years to Vermeer employees and their spouses on preparing for the third phase of life after retirement. Thinking about how you can use your experience and passions to give back to others how to really be influential for them in their lives is something that we are both really passionate about, she said. And it's been fun for us to do something like that together. Ramonda Belcher, District Associate Judge, District 5C, Iowa Judicial Branch. When Ramonda Belcher was appointed to the bench on August 20, 2010, she made history as the first African-American female judge in Iowa. Her passion for making a difference in the lives of others began early when she was growing up in North Carolina. I wanted to be a judge even before I knew I had to go to law school to be one, she said. Growing up in the South, I believed judges were in a position to make a difference. I did not have an attorney or a judge in my life as an example, so I believe that I am really walking in my purpose. The fact, that more, the fact that most positions in the legal profession and judgeships were predominantly held by white males was not something she really thought about at all, Belcher said. My upbringing and the confidence that I learned to have in myself wouldn't allow me to think of it as something that I could not attain because I was a black female. I cannot point to one instance where I felt like I was treated differently because of my race or because I was female. I can tell you, however, that I believe that there have that there was more expected and required of me as a black female to reach the goals that I've been able to attain. When she first applied to become a judge, Belcher was told that she didn't have enough criminal legal experience. Working at the time in the Polk County Attorney's Office on primarily juvenile cases, she moved out of her comfort zone to get criminal trial experience. Nevertheless, as she began to interview for a judge position, she was told she was too young, didn't have enough experience, and that she needed more civil law experience. So for me, it meant that I needed criminal experience and that I needed civil experience, but that was not expected of everyone, she said. And I don't imagine them telling a young white male that he was too young. She often reflects on a quote shared with her by retired Drake Law School Dean Jerry Anderson from author James Baldwin. 
If one really wishes to know how justice is administered in a country, one does not question the police, the judges, or the protected members of the middle class. One goes to the unprotected, those precisely who need the law's protections the most, and listens to their testimony. I think that even in 2020, that quote is still relevant when you think about the climate that we find ourselves in and the social justice that needs to evolve, Belcher said. As a judge, I see those who are most affected by the law on a daily basis, and I try to make sure I give them an opportunity to know they have been heard and that they've been treated fairly. They're treated with respect and that they're treated with compassion, because that is where I believe I make the most difference. Teresa Baumhoff, Iowa Mental Health Planning Council. Never give up hope, our words Teresa Bonhoff kept telling herself decades ago as she sought help for her children who were struggling with mental illness. They are words she continued to say as she helped launch NAMI Greater Des Moines, a mental health illness support group for parents that often met in Baumhoff's Des Moines home. They are words she said to herself before speaking to Iowa legislative committees as she sought financial support for services for those with mental illness and their families. They are words she said to family members of people with a mental illness. And they are words she continues to say as she explains much work is left in educating the public about mental illness. We need to continue to provide education about mental illness, how to cope with it, how to manage it, whether it's the person with the illness or whether it's the family members, whether it's an employer, said Baumhoff 70, chairman of the Iowa Mental Health Planning Council and one of this year's business record women of influence. The next thing we need to do is to make sure employers are provided with the appropriate education about mental illness, pardon me, about mental illness health care for their employees. Until recently, often when employers found out an employee had a mental illness, the worker wound up losing his or her job. We're better, but we still have a long way to go, said Baumhoff, who retired in 2011 after working 39 years at the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Des Moines Office of Rural Development. Her first job with the agency was as a clerk typist for which she was paid $2.40 an hour. When she retired, she was assistant Iowa State Director. Included in training for new recruits to the Des Moines Police Department is a week-long session on crisis intervention. The training involves a panel discussion with family members of people with mental illness, wrote Lorna Garcia, the department's mobile crisis liaison officer, in a nomination letter. Bonhoff, Baumhoff helps assemble the panel and often shares her story with the recruits, Garcia wrote. Teresa's account of her experience from a mother's perspective is powerful, compelling, and emotional. In the coming years, Baumhoff said she'd like to start turning over much of what she does to new advocates and leaders in the area of mental illness. A newsletter she produces each month is one way of sharing information she's accumulated on mental illness, she said. The newsletter often includes new research about mental illness, statistics, and links to helpful websites. I can't keep doing this forever, so that's one reason why we try and get as, month, as much information out there, Bonhoff said. Mary Jane Cobb, Executive Director, Iowa State Education Association. Advocacy for others has been a central part of Mary Jane Cobb's life, whether it's been as a backer of community college students seeking jobs, an encourager of women considering a run for public office, or a promoter of teacher leadership initiatives. I have, also, I have always advocated for people who needed their voice elevated for some reason or another, said Cobb, 54, Executive Director of the Iowa State Education Association, 
and one of this year's business record women of influence. And I always thought education was a way to do that, to help students find their voice and their, find their path. When Cobb graduated from college, she worked for a rural hospital as director of patient and community relations. She advocated within the hospital for patients and their families and within the community for the hospital. She began her career in education at an Alabama community college where she worked with students seeking jobs. That position serves as, served as a stepping stone to other jobs in the education field, primarily working in areas related to public policy. Cobb was a political science major in college and spent a lot of time studying public policy, quote, something I've always been intrigued by, she said. Of course, education is full of public policy issues. This is especially true as policymakers wrestle with decisions re related to reopening schools in the fall after they were closed in March to help slow the spread of the novel coronavirus. Everyone in education is affected by this. Bus drivers, secretaries, school nurses, counselors, a whole panoply of folks, she said. We have to make sure our schools are incredibly safe and that we are being supportive of all our staff and of our students so that we can get back to learning. Numerous challenges exist, Cobb said, including ensuring that all students have access to high-speed internet if in-person learning is not possible. During the shutdown of schools in the spring, educators saw firsthand the magnitude of the digital divide. Inequities do exist from household to household in terms of what kind of internet access families have and how many devices are available for students in a home, Cobb said. If we have to send students home to learn again, we have to know that they have the connectivity they need and that they have the devices they need to be able to learn. Iowa as a whole was not prepared to react to the pandemic in the spring, Cobb said. Some school districts had developed distance learning programs, including providing students with computer tablets. Others had not taken any steps to develop plans for distance learning. Many students lacked access to broadband internet making online learning difficult. And just as important, not all teachers were prepared to deliver lessons online, Cobb said. In Iowa, by and large, we have had a face-to-face -face teaching world. Providing online instruction is a very different way of teaching. The Education Association and Area Education Associations moved quickly to develop online courses to better help teachers deliver instruction remotely, Cobb said. I can say that when teachers go back to school this fall, if a building has to close because there is an outbreak and students have to continue learning remotely, teachers are going to know more about how to do that than they did this spring. Kelly Markey, Executive Director, Dorothy's House. Dorothy's House and the work it does to help survivors of human trafficking all started when its founder, Kelly Markey, wanted to get involved in the local volunteer community to meet new people and possibly discover a new career path. Now, four years after Dorothy's house opened, Markey is being re recognized as a woman of influence by the business record. After working at eBay and earlier stints in the marketing world, Markey returned to her hometown of Des Moines in 2012. After volunteering and sitting on the board of Youth Emergency Services and Shelter, she became a foster parent. Those experiences made her aware of the needs that existed in the community, Markey said. Markey had already bought a house to use as a shelter to help girls recovering from sexual abuse, but the mission of Dorothy's house shifted after she was invited to a seminar hosted by the Chrysalis Foundation on the issue of human trafficking in Iowa, 
we just transitioned our mission to finally to be finely tuned to this population, she said. Markey got the backing of some local churches and other groups, and Dorothy's house opened in 2016. Markey's vision is to expand its services to reach a broader community, including offering non-residential services as well as expanding care to men and the LGBTQ community. This is work that isn't being done by one agency nationally right now to open up the scope of care for all survivors of this crime, she said. There's so much we don't know about doing it, but we're just going to start. Christina Bussey, Victim Witness Program Coordinator at the United States Attorney's Office in the Southern District of Iowa, praised Markey for the influence she has had on the girl she helps. Victims of human trafficking in Iowa are lucky to have an advocate like Kelly in their corner, Bussey said in her letter of recommendation for the Women of Influence nomination. Her work with victims of human trafficking leaves a lasting impact not only on the victims themselves, but also on the community as a whole. Markey said several coaches throughout her childhood and her piano teacher influenced her growing up in Des Moines' South Side. They, combined with their prior work experiences, helped prepare her for the work she does today, she said. It was divine intervention, she said. You don't decide to do this. It happens to you. Sherry McMichael, Executive Director, Variety, the Children's Charity of Iowa. All it took was seeing a sea of Special Olympics t-shirts at a Renaissance Fair in Minneapolis for Sherry McMichael to know where she belonged, working to improve the lives of children. McMichael, 57, is the Executive Director of Variety, the Children's Charity of Iowa, where she has been at the helm for 20 years. Before that, she was Vice President of Development for Special Olympics Iowa. McMichael is being recognized as one of the business records Women of Influence for 2020, an honor she humbly says is the result of those who stand beside her doing the work she describes as her passion. It really makes me, it makes me feel really good that the work being done by Variety, not me, but by Variety as an organization, is being recognized. McMichael was working for a health maintenance organization in Des Moines when she was approached about applying for the Special Olympics job. Before the process was complete, she and her husband visited a Renaissance festival in Minneapolis where she spotted a large number of people wearing Special Olympics t-shirts ahead of the World Games the next year. To me, that was a sign that this is what I needed to do, McMichael said. She quickly learned the ins and outs of fundraising and the importance of meeting grant deadlines, all while making a difference in the lives of children. Jump ahead to her leadership at Variety. It was just a different opportunity to impact all kids underprivileged, at risk, critically ill, those living with special needs, McMichael said. And that's the end result of the work that drives her, she said. As hard as it is and as sad as it is sometimes, you just want to wrap those kids in your arms and take them home, take care of them, and make all those things go away. We're doing that in our own way. McMichael was praised for her enthusiasm in a letter of recommendation submitted by Don and Margot Blumenthal. Sherry couldn't achieve all she does without an exuberant personality, the Blumenthal's wrote. She is always smiling and is ready to tackle the most difficult jobs with a positive attitude. McMichael attributed some of her success to her friend Rosalie Gallagher, whom she described as, quote, a ball of fire. She works so hard for the community and to give back in different ways, McMichael said. She really influenced me in keeping my eye on the end result. Don't let the things along the way distract you. 
McMichael also spoke about the inspiration she received from Jody Reynolds, the first female president of Variety International, and whose husband, Stan, was one of the founders of the Variety Telethon. McMichael's voice cracked with emotion as she remembered her friend who died last year. She was quiet and calm, and watching her really influenced me, McMichael said. To watch her as she led Variety International and how she did it just really inspired me. Maura Nelson, French-English professor, Des Moines Area Community College. Maura Nelson's journey to become a French professor and internationally recognized advocate of French culture and culinary techniques began with a quick glance at a travel poster at age 19 as an English major at Northwestern University. She liked the idea of a 55-day European tour, and her parents supported the idea of Nelson traveling during her education. I got to Paris, and after the first day there, I sent my parents a postcard and said, I've fallen in love with Paris. I should have written, I've fallen in love with Paris because because for the next eight weeks, my mother thought I'd found a guy in Paris, and maybe I wasn't coming back, Nelson said, laughing. In her second week teaching as an adjunct for DMACC in 1986, Nelson served as a translator for two chefs visiting from Des Moines French sister city, St. Etienne, who were leading a culinary techniques demonstration for students. Nelson was inspired and told chef Robert Anderson she would volunteer to help turn the demonstration into an annual event at DMAC. Since that time, as the lead marketer and fundraiser for the Iowa Culinary Institute's French Chef Exchange, Nelson has assisted in bringing more than 50 chefs to Iowa, and the program has grown to send more than 100 students on a yearly two-week trip to France to study culinary techniques with the chefs of the of l'Association des Cuisineurs de la Loire. Nelson leads the coordination of both programs and private fundraising to sponsor the year's top eight culinary graduates to participate in each trip for free. We go to two-star Michelin restaurants, three-star restaurants. We go to the top wineries in France. And the reason we do that is because this is all about education, Nelson said. We want you to see what fine dining is all about. We want you to see what the possibilities are for innovative dining and creative cooking. We want you to see what's out there because we want you to come back to Iowa and make a difference in the culinary scene here in Des Moines. When I look in 2020 and see what we've done and how this program has influenced Central Iowa's dining scene, I'm very excited and very proud I've had any small part in that. It's taking one of my favorite things in the world, which is education and getting people out there and really thinking in a global perspective. Kesho Y. Scott, retired associate professor, sociology department, Grinnell College. In early June, Dr. Kesho Scott called on her Grinnell neighbors with a request. Minneapolis man George Floyd had just died at the hands of police. News and social media were a whirl of coverage and Americans were taking to protest. Scott saw a place with the 150 residents to lend their voice in a small memorial now located on the United Christ of Church property. A few weeks in, Scott had assisted three more rural communities in setting up George Floyd memorials and planned to help in as many communities that asked her to. That's what I'm supposed to be doing, and I'm really grateful that I could do that, she said. Our racial narrative in America doesn't have to be one of hate. Our racial narratives in America can be one of unity. 
Scott sees leadership like a puzzle. Pieces of a vision, the service of an individual's skills, personal integrity, and the connections of an individual's personal mission and visible actions. Through life, Scott has sought to develop her own influence and skills to be of service to, be a, to a broader community. In her adopted hometown of Grinnell, the international leaderships she's developed in teaching unlearning racism workshops and in the sociology classrooms at Grinnell College. In 2017, Scott, Scott appealed directly to more than 26,000 attendees as the featured speaker at the Iowa Women's March in Des Moines. Leadership to me is a relationship, it's not a role. And in the beginning, the relationship with someone else means that it requires you listen and requires that you have felt a sense that you're present with someone, Scott said. When leadership isn't felt by others as a relationship that's connected, then you're not really a leader, you're playing a role. Scott has long used travel, both personal and professional, to develop her own understanding of being a global citizen. Early in high school, Scott, a descendant of enslaved African Americans, resolved to visit Africa. She's taught on Fulbright Fellowship in Ethiopia and traveled as a guest lecturer in China, two of the 40 countries she's visited over the years. Travel was always on my agenda, always a tool for how I can expand. Choosing to be a global citizen meant that I can operate at the local level, but with the idea of having global influence, Scott said. I wanted to have the greatest influence because that gave me the ability to have an impact. You are listening to the reading of the business record for July 24th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Teresa Adams Tomka, President Owner of Kitchen Collage. Up high along the west wall of Kitchen Collage is a line about a dozen large photos of various adventures that Teresa Adams Tomka, Tomka has experienced in recent years, several of them being with above and beyond cancer. When she finds a moment to steal a glance at them, she's reminded of the places she's gone and the people she's met who have worked hard to give life to others. She's climbed, climbed Imja C, a 21,000-foot peak in Nepal, once, and Mount Kilimanjaro, a 19,000-foot dormant volcano in Tanzania, twice. She's hiked to the base of Mount Everest. She's been on a team of cyclists that raced across the United States in less than eight days. She ran consecutive marathons in Virginia and West Virginia. She's competed in several triathlons. She's biked to four state capitals with a group of friends, starting from Des Moines. I work really hard and I also play hard, Adams Tomka said, but life, is not, but life has not come easy. In 2007, her husband Jim died in a boating accident while fishing in northern Minnesota. Adams, Adams Tomka said that moment was a major turning point in her life. Death and grief teach you a lot. You gain perspective in a way because none of us are getting out of here alive, right? So each day I try to be present and active and be a part of whoever I interact with. Adams Tomka decided to get, keep Jim's memory alive by dedicating more time for travel and philanthropy. My purpose is to get up every day and contribute. What am I doing to contribute to somebody's life, to make somebody's life better today? Maybe that's with words. Maybe that's I helped somebody find the right kitchen gadget for them. Adams Tomka started working in retail in 1980. As she describes, she married the love of her life two years later and ended up 
typing briefs for Jim while he was in law school. She, she had her five children shortly thereafter, and in 1991, she found herself working part-time at Backcountry Outfitters in Beaverdale to get out of the house. In 1999, Adams Tomka and her friend Molly Eliason, who is no longer involved with the company, first opened Kitchen Collage on 100th Street in Irvindale. Five years later, they moved their location at 430 East Locust Street in the East Village, where Adams has been ever since. We were just hoping to continue to serve the community. Sometimes I come to work at 7 a.m. and I don't leave until 7 p.m. Retail is hard work. I enjoy hard work and I feed on that. I am here to serve. Natalia Boychenko, Employee Benefits Consultant, Holmes Murphy & Associates. Natalia Boychenko once read somewhere that if you want to know what your life purpose is, go back to what you played with when you were between the ages of three and five. As a young girl growing up in Ukraine, Boychenko recalled she liked to do two things, teach her stuffed animals and pretend to be an international businesswoman. I would call myself from one room to another, pretending to be in England and calling someone in France. I would spend hours doing that, she said. Fast forward 30 years, she's still teaching, although this time around as an adjunct professor at Drake University and is currently one of the younger shareholders at Holmes Murphy & Associates. Wojcienko first visited Iowa as a freshman exchange student at Rockwell City Lytton High School where she attended classes for six weeks. I thought that I could do anything in the United States. I thought that you could work hard and, and make all your dreams come true. I always wanted to be independent and I wanted to help others. Upon landing back in Ukraine, she immediately knew she wanted to go back to the United States for college. My mom told me that when she picked me up at the airport, she asked how the trip went and I told her, Mom, I don't know how and I don't know when, but I am going back there. She returned to the United States to, to attend Des Moines Area Community College as a 17-year-old to begin studying on a track that would lead to a career in the banking and insurance industries. Wojcienko comes from a banking family. Her mom, stepdad, and older sister all worked in the industry. She enjoyed working with numbers, so following in their footsteps, she got her start by working at Wells Fargo, first as a teller, then moving into personal banking. She realized she preferred to work with people on the service side of the industry. Boychenko got in touch with one of her mentors, financial advisor Mike Bean, who connected her with Steve Flood, then the employee benefits leader at Holmes Murphy. She has since worked at Holmes Murphy for 14 years. Boychenko considers mentorship a big facet of her life. Any successful person has had a ton of people supporting and believing in them, she said. There are so many of those people in my life, and I am so grateful for their influences on me. In turn, she believes that it's her purpose to be that source of mentorship and inspiration to others and has since mentored dozens of people. It's fun to hear different perspectives. As much as they're learning from me, I'm learning from them too, she said. Each person you meet is a teacher or a student, and you have to figure out what they are. You can also always learn, and you can always teach. Veterans Administration to Expand Capacity with Des Moines Outpatient Clinic. $35 million project will create state-of-the-art clinic on city's south side. Less than two years from now, Central Iowa military veterans will have access to a new state-of-the-art outpatient clinic on Des Moines south side that will offer a full suite of primary care services, as well as a new delivery point for t telehealth services. 
By February 2022, the VA Central Iowa Healthcare System plans to open the 49,000 square foot outpatient primary care annex at 1111 East Army Post Road. The completely renovated facility will be located in the former Toys R Us retail store near, near South Ridge Mall. The $35 million outpatient clinic project will provide a full range of services, including primary care and physical medicine, mental health, radiology, and pathology laboratory service, and a prosthetics lab. It has been in the works for several years to move primary care and some other supportive services into the community in what is known, what are known as primary care annexes, said Gail Graham, who has been director of the VA Central Iowa Healthcare System for the past four years. With the new clinic, a majority of the primary care staff, about 200 personnel, including physicians, nurses, therapists, lab and radio technicians, physical therapists, and support staff, will shift from the VA Des Moines Medical Center at 3630th Street. The new facility will also have a few additional building management personnel. The health system currently has about 40,000 veterans enrolled, a number that could grow with the added facility. The VACIHS serves 42 counties in the central portion of the state. We certainly hope that this clinic expands our enrollment capabilities and attracts additional veterans, Graham said. A stretch goal would be to increase the enrollment by 10% annually. We will certainly make sure that it's known that we we will certainly make sure that it's known and we actively try to recruit additional veterans. We do anticipate that this will expand our capabilities in primary care for the veterans in our catchment area and also for providing those additional services. We've had a lot of success with putting physical therapy in the outpatient clinics and this has been very beneficial for our veterans. The clinic size will allow the VA primary care providers to have multiple exam rooms, which will increase efficiency in seeing patients, Graham said. The need for extra exam rooms has been exacerbated recently by the need for COVID-19 distancing. Right now, they have a single exam room, so the veteran is actually being moved from room to room as they're interviewed by the nurse and then by the physician. So it will really be really allow us to be more like the private sector clinics where the providers have multiple exam rooms. The new clinic will also have telehealth services available to connect with providers at the medical center and possibly other locations. Even in our community-based outpatient clinics, there are many things that we can do with, with specialty care by using telehealth to connect with the specialist at the main facility without asking the veteran to travel. For example, we can use telehealth to connect with an audiologist to do hearing examinations from the main facility or from anywhere from that matter. The VA currently provides medical resident training for physicians, pharmacists, nursing, and physical therapy students at its facilities and will continue at the new primary care annex. Parking, which has been an issue at the main facility, should be alleviated with 200 spaces that will come with the new clinic, Graham said. And we believe that it will be easier for many veterans to get there logistically they won't have to drive through the city per se. They will have the parking available and they will have the services there. We will have a shuttle running between the main campus and the clinic for things like MRIs or CAT scans, but all the flat film x-rays and all the lab draws will be done at the clinic. And we're trying, going to try to keep the back and forth between facilities to a minimum. With all new equipment and furnishings as part of the project, the new facility can really be described as state of the art, she said.
We determined a number of years ago that because of the age of our building that we couldn't remodel the existing space here to meet the patient-aligned healthcare models, the way the work flows, and the way the patients are seen in the environment, Graham said. Each of the five existing community-based outpatient clinics, CBOCs, will remain open, she said. The new clinic will be about four times the size of those clinics, which are located in Mason City, Fort Dodge, Knoxville, Marshalltown, and Carroll. Construction is currently underway to replace the Mason City CBOC with a new facility. The primary care annex project in Des Moines could have been contracted as a build-to-suit structure like the one being built in Mason City, but the VA chose to remodel an existing building instead. Johnson Healthcare Real Estate was selected through a competitive bid process by the VA for the Des Moines Reservation Project, which will also extend the length of the structure by about 30 feet. It's the 12th such primary care annex that will be built nationally by the Birmingham, Alabama-based firm, which will also own and manage the property upon its completion. The adaptive reuse of the previous building provides a significant opportunity to not only reduce costs, but also minimize the environmental impact of additional development, said Derek Weaver, Senior Vice President of the Federal Development for Johnson. The space created in the medical center by the relocated primary care clinic will be used to better accommodate specialty services, among them an expansion of the oncology clinic to provide more room for an infusion center, as well as to move physical therapy facilities to a larger space. I have more people vying for this space than I have space, Graham said. Leading by example, meet the owner behind Quester's certification as a disability-owned enterprise. Sometimes Robert Louis Lewis engages with those who are staring at him, but mostly the stares are just a fact of life. There is a difference in how people interact with you when you're in a wheelchair, he said. When you're in that wheelchair, people have a tendency to raise their voice as though you can't hear them. Or they will ask, whoever is with me pushing the chair, can Louie do this as, as far as something they want to do with me? And usually the response from my caregiver is, why don't you ask him? When he talks with a person who's been staring, they're often taken aback at first. His point is not to embarrass them, but to engage in a discussion about his disability and give them the answers to questions they're keeping to themselves. They want to ask, he said, so I help them out with that. Lewis owner and chief financial officer of the Des Moines-based marketing research firm, Quester, tries to make people more aware of disabilities in both work and life. Just being a business owner with a disability can be an example enough. Earlier this year, Quester announced its new certification as a disability-owned business enterprise from Disability.in, a national nonprofit that helps businesses drive performance by leveraging disability inclusion in the workplace. Disability IN defines a disability-owned business enterprise as, quote, a for-profit business that is at least 51% owned, managed, and controlled by a person with a disability, regardless of whether or not that business owner employs persons with a disability, according to its website. The certification connects those businesses with resources, networking, business matchmaking opportunities like supply chain expansion, policy advocacy, and access to private sector corporations. It's important for the community to have access to and support disabled business owners, Lewis caregiver Krista Mater said. Louis gets a tremendous amount of comments that he's still working in spite of his extreme disability. Hopefully, at some level, 
Louie can be an inspiration for other disabled individuals who want to be an entre entrepreneur or leader in a business. Additionally, it should be a positive for all people to see that we are not limited in what we are capable of accomplishing. Lewis Leadership, since purchasing the company in 2005, has focused on innovation, and during the 2008 recession, he suggested the company put more resources into artificial intelligence. At the time, AI was still a fairly novel idea, and many staff members were uneasy about shifting their roles. But it paid off today because Quester works with Fortune 500 companies. Running a business while dealing with adversity isn't always easy, but Lewis' life motto is, Quote, even when it's tough, it's still good, unquote. Lewis' disability was not apparent until late into high school. In June 1974, he had his first surgery and was diagnosed with Chiara malformation, a condition in which brain tissue extends into the spinal canal, causing cerebrospinal fluid leak, damaging his nerves. The doctors told him he would likely end up a quadriplegic and blind. Lewis had a different life in mind, and after about 40 days post-surgery, he was running again. Before surgery, Lewis had no way to measure just how bad his pain was. When something is part of your normal, it's hard to know it's not normal. The chronic pain is something he's lived with since he was 21, requiring several procedures and treatments, but it has never stopped him from pursuing the life he wanted both professionally and personally. In 2006, just a year after purchasing Quester, he faced another difficult challenge. He contracted post-surgical meningitis, a rare complication after spinal lumbar surgery that, associated, that is associated with high mortality rates. People often ask him if he's ever thought of giving up, and the answer is unequivocally no. I want to see how this thing turns out, Lewis said of pressing on in life. So it's no surprise that after the new challenge in 2006, he made the decision to keep working part-time. His new state also meant he could no longer drive and would need 24-7 care. It wasn't until more recent years that Lewis considered himself to have a disability. So while he knew about the passage of the Americans with Disabilities Act of 1990, he didn't follow the work of advocates that closely. Back then, I was able to function. I had to make some changes, but I never once considered myself disabled. And it's just been in the last five years, I'm guessing, that I've been able to call myself disabled. I like to say I'm inconvenienced more than I like to say I'm disabled. It's inconvenient, but we can figure out a way to make it work. Lewis has spent more time in recent years being more involved with disability advocacy groups. The disability-owned business enterprise certification has been something he wanted Quester to have for several years. One of the things that people do not realize in this world is how much effort it takes to be disabled, he said. I wanted to first and foremost make people aware of the fact that just because you're disabled doesn't mean you can't work and have a company. What would Lewis say to others in leadership positions who have never lived with a disability themselves? How can they do a good job of making sure they're inclusive and their company's hiring practices are inclusive? Have them give me a call and I'll straighten them out, Lewis said with a chuckle. It's important to understand that most companies already have people with disabilities employed, they just haven't disclosed it, he said. Employers already have a lot of people where it's not outwardly visible that they are disabled or they have some illness that keeps them from functioning as much as they might like, Lewis said. Mental, mental illness is one of the huge amounts of people that are working every day and most companies probably don't even realize that they are dealing with some extra issues.
So I know we have tried to be an advocate for that type of disability as well, trying to help people out. I've done some mentoring work in that area. Leaders are trying to figure out what they should do with disabled people as far as hiring them, when in fact they already know what their work ethic is because they've already employed many of them. Eyesores. Des Moines has gained a reputation in recent years as one of the nation's most photogenic cities, and rightfully so. For the past decade, Des Moines has been represented in publications around the world by two iconic images. One is the John and Mary Papa John Sculptor Park, where the most commonly reproduced view is of Spanish artist Juan Plense's 25-foot-tall Normad, created from random stainless steel letters welded in the shape of a person sitting with knees drawn up to chest. The other is the dramatic single span of the principal river's Women of Achievement Bridge photograph from an angle that frames the down skyline. Lurking not far from both images are public eyesores. On the river walk, the offender is a rusty, paint-peeling railroad bridge south of the popular Red Trestle Pedestrian Bridge, which serves as a downstream counterpoint to the Women of Achievement Bridge. When viewed from Martin Luther King Jr. Parkway, the rusting side rails of the railroad bridge are pretty much all you can see upstream because they largely obstruct all else. I'm amazed that no one has been able to shame the railroad into applying a decent coat of paint to that ugly bridge. Not the city, not Principal Financial Group, which shepherded the $60 million Riverwalk effort. Not even state government, which benefits hugely from the positive image created by the Riverwalk. Or at the river, let me mention two more eyesores. One is the old power station just below the, cent the Center Street Dam. If that building needs to be there, they could at least put some decent covering around it. There, the other isn't as much an eyesore as a problem in the making. A good portion of the beautiful paving blocks that were installed to make the walking surface near the river feel more like a patio or crumbling into gravel. Apparently, whatever kind of stone they used does not hold up well to the freeze-thaw cycles of Iowa winters. The metro area has many other eyesores. There are, for example, many strip malls that have fallen on the hard times. Examples are the area along Fleur Drive, between the Des Moines International Airport and the Wakanda Club and areas of East 14th Street. The old Sherwood Forest site in Irvindale is another example of a poorly maintained commercial area, as is the nearby Des Moines Ice Arena. Another offender is the grain elevator on Park Avenue. There isn't much you can do to enhance the harsh industrial look of a row of concrete silos, but I do wish the owners had the sense to paint, to plant trees or use other appropriate shrubbery on the acres of adjoining bare ground. It's amazing how little lands, how a little landscaping can soften the appearance of even the nastiest eyesores. After years of pleading and threatening, the owner of the long vacant Ingersoll Theater finally installed sidewalk planters with foliage, as many other nearby property owners did years ago. It makes a world of difference. Downtown eyesores include the empty pit where, where east half of the old Yonkers department store once stood and the now empty Kaleidoscope Mall. Both are eventually expected to be resolved with new developments. In my opinion, Des Moines' worst visual monstrosity is on the western edge of downtown. Across Grand Avenue from the Papa John sculpture is the city's most fascinating building, Krauss General Corp's $160 million corporate structures corporate headquarters designed by world-renowned architect, architect Renzo Piano. Much has been written about the unusual shape and structure of the six-story building. 
Unfortunately, if you attempt to view it from Ingersoll Avenue, you won't see much because a huge billboard at 18th Street blocks the line of sight to both the building and the nearby sculpture garden. Storytelling 2.0. As marketers, we are continually being told that we should tell stories, but what exactly does that mean? It's recommended that we use one of the 14 character archetypes, the rebel, the outsider, the warrior, etc., so the audience can relate to us. Then we should make the customer the hero. And of course, we should follow one of the seven story frameworks, the quest, the rebirth, etc., to build our stories so they feel like a book or movie. But even if we do all that, is the audience going to care about a story featuring our product or service? If that were the case, wouldn't most TV shows be about diapers or SUVs? Let's go back to our advertising roots and look at how storytelling and marketing first got blended together. Benton and Bowles was an agency based in New York that was launched in 1929 by Benton and Bowles, one of the largest clients at the time was Procter & Gamble. In a world we would struggle to understand, their challenge was that they didn't have a channel that would allow them to reach enough of their target audience, homemakers. Their solution was brilliant. There was no channel that attracted their core audience, so they created one. They invented the radio soap opera so they could create sponsorships and ad placements for Procter & Gamble and other clients who wanted to target homemakers with their message. By 1936, they were responsible for three of the four most popular radio shows on the air, including As the World Turns. And that does it for today's reading of the business record for July 24th. I'm your reader, Al Burns. You can access the recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thanks for listening.
From the Bureau of Economic Geology, this is Earth Date. A decade ago, there were typically 20 earthquakes a year that were large enough to feel in the central and eastern U.S. But in 2015, there were over 1,000 of them. Why? It's mostly because we're pumping more water into the ground. The boom in U.S. oil and gas production over the last decade has brought many more oil wells, which also produce water. Most is naturally occurring in the formation, and some was injected by operators to allow or improve the recovery of oil and gas. In both cases, the water will likely have picked up salt and other minerals from the rock, making it many times saltier than seawater. Operators may re-inject this water to continue to liberate oil and gas, but more often, there's too much to handle. So it's trucked or piped to disposal wells where it's pumped down into deep saltwater reservoirs. Adding large volumes of wastewater increases the pressure in these rock formations, which can allow natural faults to slip more easily than they normally would, causing earthquakes. To address these quakes, regulators and the petroleum industry are monitoring disposal wells and shutting down those that could cause damaging seismic activity. And they now think that managing wastewater injection more carefully should help. There's still more work to be done, and university research centers, like the Bureau of Economic Geology, are conducting major studies with the aim of minimizing the risk of earthquakes while maintaining the benefits of domestic energy production. For Earth Date, I'm Scott Tinker. Earth Date is produced by the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas at Austin with support from Schlumberger, helping oil and gas companies increase production and efficiency while lowering environmental impact. You can hear more EarthDate stories at earthdate.org.